Hey everyone, and hope you're doing well wherever you're listening to this episode. I know we got some crazy times in our world right now, but certainly appreciate you plugging in and listening to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco. Got a phenomenal guest today by the name of Robbie Kelman Baxter. Let me give a quick synopsis, little uh, insight into her bio, and everything will be in the show notes where you can link up with her. But Robbie Kelman Baxter brings over 20 years of strategy consulting and marketing expertise to Peninsula Strategies. Her strategy consulting firm focused on helping companies leverage subscription pricing, digital community, and freemium to build deeper relationships with customers. Her clients have included startups and mid-sized venture-backed companies, as well as industry leaders such as Netflix, Oracle, Electronic Arts, and eBay. Over the past 18 years, Peninsula Strategies has advised over 100 organizations and over 20 industries on growth strategy. And she has a lot of great knowledge. Her new book, Just Launching, The Forever Transaction, How to Build a Subscription Model So Compelling, your customers never want to leave. And we talk a lot about that new book in the episode today, as well as her last book, where I just finished reading, actually, and we go into a couple of key points that I took away from that, and she breaks that down and dissects it. It's going to really help a lot of folks out there, especially folks that are maybe looking to start their own business or maybe early on um, in their business journey as well. So certainly appreciate Robbie being on the episode, sharing her journey, and a lot of great insight. So let's jump into it. In my interview today with Robbie Kelman Baxter. Let's get it started. Hey, Robbie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining today. Thanks for having me, Brian. Well, I'm excited to chat with you on a number of fronts. Um, congratulations on the, on the new book. Thank you. Yeah, I know there's a lot of excitement on your end. And I want to get into that, just the whole point of really just writing a book. You've wrote several, so just that whole process, because that's I know a lot of us have thought about writing books and stuff, so we'll get into that a little bit later if that's okay, if I can put a pin in that for a moment. Um, why don't we do this? I always like to, as a lead-in, uh, for the first 15, 20 seconds, just a, a quick high level for folks listening that are not familiar with you, just kind of what would they be that one or two lines to kind of describe what you quote unquote do um, each and every day? Sure. I'm an expert on subscription and membership models. Uh, I've been focused on um, how those businesses work and what kind of culture is required for the past almost 20 years, starting with Netflix. Uh, and uh, I'm author of two books, Membership Economy and The Forever Transaction. You know, a question I had, I, I, and this is more from a historical, maybe you can try to give them a lesson or whatever, you know, subscription as we think about it is a lot obviously utilizing the internet and being able to have these subscription business over and over. Help me out from like 90s, 80s, et cetera. Were, were there a lot of subscription businesses around? Like I'm trying to think of one, maybe I'm missing. Like, was that a big thing or was it really with the dot-com boom and kind of some internet businesses really when subscription, what we think of today as subscription business, um, where they really, really took off? So, so businesses have been doing subscriptions, that is requiring their members to pay a regular payment for access or connection um, forever. Uh, you know, the trade guilds in the 12th century were requiring, you know, an annual fee to stay in good standing. Mm -hmm. um, Charles Dickens wrote all of his books using a subscription model. You'd, you'd pay the subscription and you'd get the next chapter. Uh, so, you know, it's been around for a really long time. And then kind of more recently, at least in, in my recent past, uh, you know, newspapers uh, and magazines, of course, have subscriptions. Uh, HBO um, and cable has been all on subscription. And then the other thing are all of these um, as seen on TVs, wait, wait, there's more, buy now, uh, Columbia House uh, Music Club, where you pay one penny and you get 12 CDs. And then you're sent a super expensive CD that you don't want every month for the rest of your life and it's impossible to cancel. Um, so those are some of the things, you know, Book of the Month Club uh, has been around for a hundred years, which I did not know uh, until oh. I started writing my book. Uh, so, so the idea of subscription has been around for a really long time. And what's really changed in the last, let's say, 15 years is the rise of enabling technologies to let us extend the, the design 
and um, relationship that we have with the people we serve. So that's what's enabled the Netflixes and the Spotify's and LinkedIn and all of the you know subscription box companies to uh, be much more entrepreneurial and fast paced in their launching and scaling of subscription models. Speaking of from an entrepreneur standpoint, why? Because I, you went, if I recall, right early on when you got out of school, you went. To, I think it was Booz Allen. You worked at some other uh, places, but why did you decide to start your own business and kind of branch out on your own? Was there? I'm, I'm kind of curious the mindset there back in that day and why you decided to go down that path. So I've always been a um, a, a good student and a and a rule follower and going along the well trod path. So I. As you said, I you know I, um, you know I, I worked after college. I worked at Booz Allen. I went to business school. I got a job at a good tech company as a product manager. Like all the things that you kind of do if you're you know building out a business as a, you you want to be an entrepreneur or an executive in your career. And then I actually got laid off while I was on maternity leave. Uh, I came back from from uh, giving birth to my second child. And was told, hey, um, you don't need to get started on any projects. Just why don't you go out and, you know, catch up with your colleagues and uh, we'll touch base this afternoon. And when I came in that afternoon, I was let go. So at that point, I said to myself, at least for the next few years, I have to be in complete control over my income. And I need to, you know, I needed to have my income be in my control. And I also needed to control my own schedule because obviously I had these kids at home. And uh, so I started consulting then uh, and I kind of gave myself permission to just do consulting for um, five years. It ended up being until my youngest child turned three. I ended up having one more kid and then I was going to reevaluate. And when I reevaluated and looked at all the different options for jobs and careers, I realized that consulting was the best possible uh, business for me for a whole bunch of reasons. And so I just doubled down and committed to it as my career, as opposed to a stopgap for while I was having kids. I got to go back with that fly nowadays, laying off someone when they're, when they're pregnant. Would oh, that... oh, well, it, yes, because Does here's it... the thing. You can't, you can't treat pregnant people or moms differently than everybody else. So if all of the, whatever, I was a director level at the time, um, if all of the people that were laid off were junior people and I was the only director laid off, um, that would have not been allowed. If all the other people that were laid off, if, if all the pregnant people in the company were laid off or all the moms were laid off and nobody was kept, that's a problem. But there were moms and uh, new moms that did not get laid off. Um, and there were other directors who were not moms who got laid off. So it wasn't a case of you know, overt discrimination where they said, hey, let's get rid of all the senior moms. And that is still, still the case. It's actually very hard to make the case that you're being discriminated against. Mm, okay. Um, even if you sort of feel inside like, wow, if I hadn't been gone for three months on maternity leave, I probably could have protected my job. Um, you know, you can't prove that. It, were you given a reason why you got laid off? Yeah. Um, the company's not doing well. Uh, we're laying off this many people, uh, non-essential roles. Uh, you're in, you know, product marketing. That's a non-essential, you know, we're really cutting back. We're only going to keep a couple people in marketing and it's not you. So it's all, it's all legal. Um, it yeah. feels terrible and it feels especially terrible when you have a new baby uh, and you're kind of counting on the insurance and, and the job itself, but it was entirely um, legal and, and, and by the book. Yeah. And I mean, I, I've been a part of a layoff as well um, many years back. And I mean, I, I looked at it as a blessing in disguise that, uh, you know, how now as I look back, but what was your situation at that point? Cause you're obviously pregnant with your second child. Like was there support at home, at least from a, another income standpoint? Like, cause some folks obviously yeah. go through that and have nothing. Um, yeah. So, so in our case, which was, you know, much better than I know so many people, uh, my husband uh, was the banker and he was at Silicon Valley bank at that time. So he had insurance. 
Um, but we were definitely, we had just bought a house and, you know, I don't know, I don't know what the North Carolina housing market is like, but the market out here in, uh, in the Bay area in Northern California is bananas. And we had just spent a ridiculous amount on a tiny, tiny little house with a little patch of lawn in the backyard and a, and a play structure. And, um, we were counting on two incomes, that mortgage. So that was, that was scary. Like I, I went into consulting saying, okay, this is my mortgage nut that I have to cover my share of the mortgage and pretty much I'll do any kind of legal ethical work that uses my skill set. So it wasn't like I came in and said, Hey, I'm only doing membership work. If you don't have a subscription business, I'm not, I'm like, if I can do it and it's legal and ethical, you know, you want me to do copy editing for you. You want me to create PowerPoints. You want me to you know, go interview candidates for jobs, whatever you want, I'm going to go do it because I just need to cover, cover my mortgage. Well, and I think that's, you know, there's a lot of grit there. I mean, the, the fact is, right, if you didn't get layoff, and I don't know if you know, maybe you agree with this or not, I mean, there's a good chance you never go down this path, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I wouldn't you know? have. I don't think I would have. Like I said, I'm a rule follower. And I always do the thing that is the good thing that you're supposed to do. Right. Um, and stepping off that path was really hard and kind of scary because when you tell somebody, oh, you know, I'm a consultant at Booz Allen or, you know, I worked at Goldman Sachs for a summer, you know, hey, I'm at Goldman. Wow. You, wow. That's great. You must be doing well. When you say you're an independent consultant, people have really different ideas about what that means in their mind. Like they might be thinking, oh, you mean you're helping your next door neighbor, you know, market her blueberry jam? you know, for free in exchange for free jam, uh, you know, it's, it's a different thing. And, and knowing what the next step is, is really hard because there's no promotions. There's no um, performance review. You're kind of just out in the wild west. Yeah. Well, so how did you get started from a consulting? Like, did you work with, you know, friends and family to kind of get that going? Or did you have some connections maybe in the Bay area that you reached out to? How did, how did that all start for you to get your first client or two? So the first thing I would say, there's, there's two kinds of approaches that I've seen. There's the dip your toe in and there's the dive into the deep end. And dive into the deep end is like you say, okay, I'm going to take a chunk of my savings. I'm going to put together my kind of my brand presence. Um, I'm going to create some intellectual capital and I'm going to act like this is going to be a success and just hold my breath. And the other is the dipping your toe in where you say, okay, I'm going to send out an email to five friendliest who might be able to most likely to hire me and then see how that works and then go from there. So no, you know, so I did a business, I did that. I did a business card and I reached out to, you know, just people who I'd worked with before or really good friends from business school or college. And so it was like, I call those the friendlies. And um, it was only after I think I got Netflix as a client uh, that I became confident enough to invest in a website and kind of an online presence. And then it was even a little bit after that, that I really doubled down on subscriptions and said, okay, this is my area of expertise. And I'm going to give preference to clients that are uh, interested in those kinds of business models. Yeah. Well, that's, I think, you know, it's kind of like a lean startup type mode. Like you did instead of invest in a ton of money, you're like, Hey, let's just figure it out here and then move down the path, which is cool. Um, when did you, cause Netflix, when you got them as a, as a client, they were still very they not just, unknown, but they were still very like new, right? Right. They had gone just to give it a sense. They'd gone public. Uh, they had, um, they were just in the process of having a national footprint. So, so one of the things that I think people forget about Netflix is that for a long time they had physical product that they had to ship. So they could yeah. only serve markets where they had a distribution center, um, that could reach people in, you know, three day turnaround, which was their promise at the time, kind of like Netflix, uh, Amazon's uh, two day delivery, you know, the big Netflix promise was, you know, we'll get you your next movie in three days, send us a movie, you'll get your new one in three days. Um, so they were just at the point where they had enough warehouses that they could do the whole um, continental US. And most of the advertising was still pretty focused on the East and West Coast, because a lot of people that weren't tech savvy didn't understand the model. So if you didn't have, you know, reliable internet, like you had to keep a queue of um, movies, right, that you wanted. So you had to be able to know how to do that on your computer. And a lot of people, like that was just too much. 
So it was still kind of a cutting edge thing, whereas now like everybody has it. So very different time. When you went in there and kind of were able to pull the curtain back and learn a little about them, what was one of the kind of the early things that you guys talked about, like that made the the switch, I guess, to maybe start that hockey stick growth, if you will. Not that they weren't starting to get there, but where, where impact did you come in and be able to help them out with? Okay. Well, first of all, let me just say they were already hockey stick. <laughs> when I came in, I did, I will not take credit for um, their phenomenal. I was trying to lead down that path. I know. You know, everything that Netflix did is really me. Um, no, but what, there were a bunch of things that I loved about the model right away. So what, what I was working on was um, different uh, customer acquisition channels. So how do you acquire new customers using new, new channels, new strategies, new tactics? Um, and they had a whole pile of things that they wanted to try that they hadn't tried yet. And I was kind of going through those while most other people in the organization were kind of in operations with existing partners um, or existing strategies. Um, but what I loved when I got there, first of all, was they only do one thing, right? Three DVDs out at a time. This is the price. There were two DVDs and a, a four or, so, or something like that. But for the most part, it was really focused. And if somebody came in and said, hey, what about if you add video games? Because it's the same model. We'd love to partner with you where you can make our games available. They're like, no, we don't do that. We do professional video content. Um, what about if you give away a TV guide annual um, yearbook to all of your members because you know the TV guide wanted to market. No, because that doesn't fit our model. We don't give them stuff. We give them three DVDs out at a time with professionally created video content. And I loved that focus. Um, I loved how they looked at the full model. So it wasn't just new customers. It was also engagement and retention. Um, and I didn't know another company that was thinking about it that um, clearly and with that much discipline. Uh, those, those, the leadership at, at Netflix was so analytically rigorous and so consistent in how they did things. Um, and I really think that was part of their you know, secret sauce. Not so well, we, secret. Yeah, and we, we see that a lot though in, and I've even been at some software companies and, and obviously we can probably name a variety of others where, especially early on, they, they have a product, they have a focus, and then a new client, they have a chance to bring on. They're like, well, I need X, Y, and Z built in. And all of a sudden, yeah. they go down this whole path of, let me change it just to bring in that client. And that yeah. starts to derail the plan. I'm sure you've seen that a ton. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I remember I, earlier in my career, I worked at a, at a product company and we had the opportunity, we sold banking software and the opportunity to um, bring in the largest bank in the country as a beta and we were so excited and proud. The problem was that what you need to do um, to serve the biggest company in the world or in the, in the country is so different from what the vast majority of that audience needs that we both overbuilt the product. There were a lot of features that other people didn't care about. And we also made it so complex to use that a lot of the smaller organizations didn't even have the resources to properly um, deploy it. Uh, and it's so tempting though, because you're like, ah, oh, if we just change for this, we can get this money right now. It's very short-term focused. Whereas I think Netflix, you know, had what, you know, the discipline to create a forever transaction and say, our goal is for the long-term for this one thing that we can do better than anybody else. Do you find when you're working with uh, different clients, do they bring you in more on like, hey, we're thinking of going down this path. We need a different perspective. Or is it more on the, we have nothing, we need to bring in someone that knows this space to even help us build this out? What, what kind of, or do you go on both, I guess? Yeah, b- both and, um, and actually more. So um, I, you know, I have this new book coming out, The, the Forever Transaction, um, this spring, and it's actually divided into three parts, um, launch, scale, lead. So launch is the phase that you're describing, either um, you know, we're thinking about doing subscription. I'm an entrepreneur and I have this idea and I'm trying to pin it down and come up with my minimum viable product and start, start testing it in a lean way. Uh, or I'm part of a little team in a big company and we're off in the corner and we're trying to figure out if subscription makes sense for us. Um, there's a set of problems and challenges that those organizations face. Um, in the scale phase, it's about figuring out, like we've got this little thing and it's working and I want to, you know, kind of 
blow the lights out. Like I want to, I want to grow like crazy with this, but I need infrastructure. I need pricing. I need metrics. I need a culture in my organization to support this growth. And then the last phase where I actually have a lot of clients as well is um, we've had a subscription business for a while and it's not working anymore the way it used to. And we're not sure what's wrong. So think about like a news organization, right? They've had subscription forever, but you know, they have issues with, you know, advertisers, digital versus print, um, reaching broader markets. What do we do with local news when there's hyper-local news? Uh, you know, what do we do when we used to have a national news, but really we're seen as a local organization? All of those kinds of questions come up for even long-time successful businesses. So I, I help them kind of at every, at every stage, I guess. Hmm. So, yeah, I want to talk about some of your books. I got some notes here. I did, I, you know, I read the membership economy <laughs> Good. and, uh, after, after, you know, our mutual friend, Brian wish I saw him post it like two months ago before you and I connected, I'm like, all right, I gotta buy this book. Cause I'm getting into some stuff with, you know, starting a business. So anyways, really good. I got a couple of notes here. I'll, I'm curious your thoughts on that. I took from it. Um, but I'm curious, why did you get into writing books? What was the, cause you were doing your consulting. That was your thing. Yeah. When, why did the author, you know, tag decide to uh, creep up on you? Okay. So a couple of things. So first of all, little known fact, I studied poetry in college. I was a liberal arts concentrator uh, and did a lot of writing uh, early on before, before I started, uh, you know, working for pay. Um, so writing is something that I like to do and, and you know, I'm pretty competent as a, as a writer. And then when it came to the consulting, you know, I told you that, you know, there was this point where I said, okay, I'm just going to give myself permission to consult to, you know, pay our mortgage. But then when I took off my blinders and said, do I want to go back into a corporate job? I decided, no, this is, this is what I want to do for the next 10 or 15 years. And at that point, I got some wise counsel that um, if you want to be a consult, a true consultant, an advisor, you really need to have an area of expertise and that most great experts have a book. So for like the next six years, I was like, oh man, I need to have a book. I need to have a book. What's my book going to be? What am I going to write about? And then I finally um, kind of got to, I was, I, for 10 years, I actually iterated on what this book would be. And, uh, you know, and then I was ready to write it. Wow. The wow. first book. Yeah. How long did the first book take you to write then after you figured it out? Nine months. Okay. Once I, once I figured it out and I got a, um, a publisher, uh, we signed the contract. I remember this on, uh, December 31st, 2013. And the book came out on, uh, in March of 2015 and I submitted it in, uh, the September of 14 of 2014. So nine months after we signed the contract. I guess, is there, what's the learning from publishing a book? So you use a publisher. What could be a, I guess, pros and cons takeaways for folks listening that want to go down that path. So anybody who's writing a book, if you're listening to this and you're thinking about writing a book, it's really important. Even if you don't tell the world that you know for yourself why you're writing the book. Are you writing the book because you have a story to tell that you want to just get out there? Um, are you writing the book um, because uh, you want to sell a lot of copies of the book and make money from the book? Or are you like me and you're writing the book as your you know, one pound business card that can explain to somebody your point of view, but ultimately you're going to use it to sell your, your professional work? Um, so, and, and, and there's many other reasons, but once you know that, then it's much easier to make a decision about whether you're going to, you know, go with a, a credible third-party publisher like I did, or whether you're going to self-publish, um, and, and whether you want to spend the money, basically, or give up a percentage of your own income to hire um, an agent or to, to, to work with an agent. Um, in my case, I decided to go the professional publishing route and work with an agent because I wasn't writing the book to make money, book for credibility. And having your book published by a big, well-known publishing house gives you a tremendous amount of credibility that a self-published book, no matter how good, doesn't enjoy. Um, 
On the other hand, if you self-publish, uh, number one, the process is much faster. As soon as you're done writing, you can put it up there. Uh, it's almost instantaneous. Um, you keep all the money for yourself. I think I only get a couple bucks a book. So I'd love for everybody listening to this to buy and read the book. Mostly I want you to read it. Uh, so if you get it from the library or get it from a friend, that's less of an issue for somebody like me than for somebody who's making you know, $28 per book um, where that is their livelihood. So those are a few of the things to be, to be thinking about. The other thing about working with a publishing house is you get assigned an editor who actually reads your book and makes sure it's good. Um, and it can be really tempting. I've read a lot of books by people I know who self-published that aren't very good. And, you know, some people think you should just write the book and get it out there and don't belabor it. And, you know, 80, 20, but it really is like, you know, 60 or maybe 40% of how good it should be when it goes out. So having a publisher really forces you um, to hold yourself to a, or not even to hold yourself, but you're held to a higher standard. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's really great advice. Um, well, let's talk about, so I want to get into the new book, Forever Transaction. I did want to, a couple of key points. So I've been reading a lot more the last year. I've actually read more books in the last year than I think I've read combined in my life. Really? That's yeah. interesting. How come? Well, I've, you know, I've been down this path the last five, six years. I kind of call it my renaissance period where I'm like this, this kind of really curiosity has taken over what I used to have as a kid, which I kind of like, I don't know, it fizzled out in my twenties. I got comfortable. I got complacent. Anyways, the, so I started to read a lot more, but over the last year, I've just really been consuming and, and not just, I mean, just a random amount of books. You know, I obviously I've read your book. I've read like why we sleep. I've read. That's a good one. Yeah. It's a great book. Um, I read, you know, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's, you know, uh, letters from a astrologist, whatever it was called, astrophysicist. Um, so like different random books about, you know, um, I, one of my favorite David, have you listened to David Goggins? Do you know David Goggins? No, is? no, I'll write it down. That, that story is absolutely incredible. He's, he's, he's crazy. He's got some language on him. So be prepared, but I would get the audiobook if you like, it's called, mm -hmm. I uh, love audio. Yeah. And he narrates the intro and then they do like mini podcasts in between. He doesn't actually narrate the whole book. Uh, but it's called Can't Hurt Me. And it is a tremendous story. I mean, what he went through and the ups and downs, but it's a, it's insane. Just what he did, you know, being a, a Navy SEAL and then, you know, getting an endurance athlete, athletic and stuff. Anyways, so I've read all these different books, but so I started to take notes. Like I, I'm like, all right, I got to take minimum of like three just notes. I don't want to, I'm not going to transcribe the entire book, but what are some things so I can look back and say, oh, what did I learn from this of actually the book? So Here's my couple from, from your book. And these are actually helpful for me. And, and I think even some other folks I've talked with that have businesses right now. One, I, I really like, and this kind of goes back to what you were saying is like, start small. There's, you don't have to like, you know, go insane um, at full throttle right out of the gate. But you, you talk about building a core group of early members which are going to be basically like almost the fire starter, if you will, which I love. And we can get into some of this stuff. Um, the second thing, which again, I love is simple pricing. Too many times I see 50 million things, you know, um, it's literally one or two, you, you talk about one or two pricing levels, um, keep it pretty basic. Um, and, you, and you can always expand down the road, the offerings, but don't confuse people. And then the one I actually like, which sometimes doesn't get thought about a lot is beware of competition. I wrote. So as you get successful, people actually want to, they see you're like, oh, these people are making money. They're successful. Gosh, I can do it better than them. So as you start actually being profitable, being successful, almost have to look out for other folks trying to innovate on your idea and, and take some of your market share. So those are the three big ones that I took away from, from your book. And any thoughts on that? Did I hit a good point? Did I, did I do yeah, a good job? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I love it. It makes yeah. me feel so good when, yeah. um, when it's useful to somebody. Absolutely. Um, so I'm curious your thoughts on any of those, maybe to elaborate if you, if you want, um, I know yeah. can be, again, helpful because a lot of folks that listen in are, whether they're doing a side hustle or they're looking to get into start something, a business, even if it's a hobby in, in kind of getting stuff out there. I'm curious if you would add any layers to what I just mentioned. Yeah. Well, I think start small is super important. We talked about the dip your toe in versus diving in. And I think you can dive in if you've got deep pockets and 
you know, and that can be money and also time and effort. If you have a team and money to throw at it, great, you know, go for it, go big or go home. But for most of us who, you know, solopreneurs, bootstrapping, side hustle people, you know, it's okay to start really small. And in fact, to focus in really clearly on who is that best member that you can serve really well. And then, you know, optimize your offering that very small group. And then if it works, you can always expand, but start by going 110% for a small sliver of your, you know, ultimate potential audience, um, rather than what a lot of organizations do is, you know, they have a few features for this group, but that other group wants these other features. And then this other group, and so you're kind of trying to be all things to all people. It's like, when I ask a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, who's your membership for, they'll say, well, it's for everybody. Right. And nothing is, you know, Amazon is pretty much for everybody at this point, but even they, you know, can't reach every person where they live, um, don't have the same presence in every market. But when they started, it was only books. So people that weren't big book buyers uh, weren't really interested in what Amazon was doing, even though in their mind, in their vision, they were going to go big eventually. Started with something small. Right. Um, same thing with pricing. It's so easy, especially there's so many technologies that allow you to have all this, you know, really complex pricing. You can charge by, you know, here's your subscription, and it's also based on the number of users you have, and it's also based on if you want these features or those features, and it's also based on if you want support or not support, and also, you know, you can pay for these a la carte one time if you have a one-time event. And, and it's great. There are cases where having all of that flexibility is super important. But if you're just starting out, you want to keep your pricing as simple as you can. And, and even for bigger companies, the more complex your pricing, the more work your customer has to do to understand your pricing, which usually has the effect of reducing trust. The less I understand your pricing, the less I can relax and trust you because I don't know what the bill's going to say. Um, and then your last one about kind of, I think it was being aware, beware of copycats as you grow. Uh, you know, Netflix had such a different and innovative model. And, you know, 15 years ago, just three DVDs out at a time, no late fees was like mind blowing. But now every single media creator has a subscription and Lots and lots of companies have streaming services where they access pre-existing content and bundle it differently. Um, so Netflix has to keep innovating and they have with, you know, they're streaming versus three DVDs, three DVDs out at a time. Uh, they create their own content now instead of just uh, using other people's content and making it available. Uh, and they're available not just on your DVDs, but you can access it through your, your gaming console, your mobile phone, your smart TV, uh, you know, there's all different ways for you to access that content. So you've got to keep innovating. I always say you want to look at your company through your microscope and you also want to use your telescope to see what's on the horizon. It's very easy when you have a successful membership business to just use the microscope and keep iterating for that little group inside without worrying about how to bring more people in tomorrow. Yeah, that's, that's good insight there. Um, and, and again, I think it's partly, I don't know the best way to say this, I guess. So I'll probably bite my tongue of like, you know, probably poor way, but I, mean, I think you have, you know, you kind of look at it internally, right? You have that intuition of like where I could go. And, and here's, this, you know, sometimes logic has to be in play. Like, if you know you're going to get overwhelmed with a lot of features or a lot of price, like I think sometimes, I don't know why it seems like folks trip over themselves of like, I got to give, as you mentioned, I got to give everything to everybody. But the reality is if we look how we buy, we want the simple, right? We want, we like going to Apple's website and it's just so clear, you know, cut. I, it's, it's funny how some folks, I guess, when they're doing a business, do you see this? Like they almost trip over trying to outthink themselves, like almost outkick yeah. themselves, if you will, or. Yeah. Well, people, I always say it's like about being clever. Um, and I don't mean clever in the good way, but, you know, to sort of be like, oh, you know, tricky, tricky. Like, oh, well, like back to the, you know, Netflix, the, the blockbuster thing, you know, Netflix went out with no late fees because 
you know, Blockbuster was making more money on late fees, right, than on the actual fees for the movies in the first place. And um, when your pricing gets like that and you're, you kind of look at the bill and you say, wait, what just, what just happened here? Like, I find that all the time when I, you know, it's my hotels. I travel a lot for work. Right in the hotel room might be, let's say the hotel room is $99. And then there's a resort fee, which I'm like, what, what resort? You know, I slept in my room. I, I came back to the room at 11 o'clock at night and I left at 7 a.m. I did not experience any resort. Um, but that might be, you know, a $50 charge. And then you're charged for Wi-Fi and then you're charged for something else. It's, it creates this feeling of, of mistrust. Um, even though the organization thinks they're being either clever or they think that they're being helpful by saying, well, just pay as you go. You know, you want to use the Wi-Fi? That's an extra $9. You want to, you know, take a shower? That's $4. You want to, you know, park your car? That's $11. Um, and in, in some cases that can work. But in many cases, you know, when you feel like that meter is running as a customer, you change your behavior. You don't do what's in your best interest. And you feel like you're in an adversarial standoff with the company, like I need to be, I need to have my wits about me because, you know, the company is going to try to take advantage, yeah. which is how most people feel when they're buying airline tickets. Well, I was just going to say, I think a great example is Southwest, right? Mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. Free, you know, free bags, you don't have to worry about it. It's one less barrier to entry and just kind of simplify it. But I think they're another example. I know a little of their story, uh, but I, if I recall, like they started just like one, almost kind of like how Virgin started, like one airline, like or one airplane, and then slowly two, and then three, and then just very, very bare bones to get it started and try to trim as much excess weight, if you will, from um, for lack of a better phrase, like excess garbage, and just to almost build that membership uh, or that I guess that community center. It seemed like. Yeah. So, so funny story. When I was working at Booz Allen a hundred years ago, I worked on an airline project. And one of the things I had to do was to try to understand the Southwest model. And this was, you know, in the early days of Southwest Mm. and like many companies that are very successful, um, the part that consumers see has to deal with the culture and the marketing, you know, they're kind of irreverent marketing, the funny things that the you know, lead flight attendant says when you're checking, you know, when you're getting, you know, when you're doing your safety check. Um, and that's all wonderful, the culture. But what's really important to see is that the culture fits with all the other pieces of their business model. So in the case of Southwest, um, for many years, I don't know if this is still, they only used one type of plane, a 737, which means that they only need one type of mechanic and one type of pilot and one type of crew of the same size every time, nice. which dramatically simplifies all of the operations, um, right? Because yep. if you, I mean, think about it, if you have a, a small plane um, and, and then three of those flight attendants are going to go be on a big plane next, but the other flight with the other three flight attendants is delayed, that delays the whole big thing. But if, if every group has the same number of flight attendants and needs the same, you know, experience, uh, you know, at the gates, it just makes, and, and you have to change people around, you know, everything is so much easier. Um, they also, I think, I think that they used, I'm trying to think if they used union, union uh, flight attendants and pilots, but they had a lot of different ways of, of structuring their business that were very, very focused on keeping costs low and getting people where they need to go on time, as opposed to the hundred other things that they might have focused on, like, you know, great food, uh, you know, different sized planes, you know, all those things. The other thing they did is they went to, um, and I'm really on a roll here with Southwest Trivia, but they mostly used second tier airports which were less crowded and less expensive. Right. Um, so anyway, yeah, having a focus on what you're trying to do, what your forever promises to your customers and not trying to be all things to all, all people uh, are, are just two of the tactics you can solve this. Yeah. All right. So I want to talk about the new book. I, I, I'm curious. So explain to me the, the, the title, why you chose this title, because it's the very thing, the forever transaction, how to build a subscription model so compelling your customers never want to leave. Right. So that hits you right there. Okay. So why do people, how do we build it? So people don't leave. Yeah. And not just so people don't leave. So people don't want to leave. I don't want to leave. 
because there are many, many companies that make it so you can't leave, like the kind of Hotel California, you can check out anytime you want, but you can't leave. I just had this experience with a subscription business where I wanted to cancel. So on Friday at five o'clock California or four o'clock California time, I decided I wanted to cancel. Guess what? I have to cancel on the phone with them. And they close at five o'clock East Coast time. So I was like, okay, fine. So I'll do it on Monday. And then on Saturday, I got a bill from them. Right. So they still bill on Saturday. You just can't cancel on Saturday. So I got a bill for the next month. And, um, you know, so, so when I wrote the book, I really wanted to say your customer will never want to leave. And so in a forever transaction, what you're doing is your, your company, your organization is committing to themselves that they are going to take care of the customer for the long term. And they're going to optimize everything in their business model around that. And as a result, when a customer comes in, they see right away that this is a business that can take care of their needs in a trustworthy way for the foreseeable future for as long as they have that need. And so they don't need to keep checking and kind of keep their consumer hat on and say, do I need to look for other things? Like your gym, right? Maybe when you're looking for a gym, you're like, I got to get in shape. You might consider a whole bunch of different things. But once you find your place, Look, I can afford this. I have a routine that I like to do. I like whatever the equipment, the classes, the people. I'm not going to go explore other options anymore. I'm this. This is one little piece of my life where I don't have to consider leaving. Right. You know, and would that be? Is is it more of a comfort? Or is it more of just like, like I mean, I look at CrossFit RTP that I go to. We were talking about CrossFit the last time, but like. Again, you just labeled every reason why I stay. Equipment's fine. No issue there. Classes are fun. Um, great community of people. It's Obviously, it's close by, so location helps. So there's all these check boxes. And, and again, price is fine. It's not any more or less than any other CrossFit gym. So there's my whole thing, too. And I, I'm curious. I'm going off on a tangent on there. because awesome. there, there was a question there. Is like, is is that the is that the big thing or is there anything else that kind of keeps people or would turn them off if like one of those things get ticked off or is that just everyone's a little different? It just depends. Okay. Here's the thing with CrossFit and I can't speak to your particular box, but CrossFit- Are you going to talk is, about the cult that is CrossFit? <laughs> what, the church of the Holy CrossFit? Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they do a lot of things really beautifully. You pointed out they're not the cheapest uh, workout on the on the block. In fact, they're one of the more expensive ones, and their facilities are pretty bare bones. But they're just like Southwest, right? They they aren't saying you know come come to CrossFit and enjoy our sauna and massage services, right? They right. say come to CrossFit, get a great really challenging workout in a super supportive environment in a consistent way. And you're going to see absolute results that you can measure, right? That's the promise. And that's the headline that gets people in. And then what, like, I always think about what's your headline benefit, which is what attracts people to make that initial transaction. And then what are the engagement benefits, the engagement features that get people to stay forever, forever part. And a lot of transact, like a lot of gyms, their headline benefit is really, really cheap gym with a lot of stuff. And so you sign up and then they actually hope you never come back. Whereas at CrossFit, um, not only did they hope you come back, but they put a lot of pressure on you to come, whatever it is, three times a week to the same session. And pretty early on in joining a particular time, you feel like you're part of that tribe to the point where at least the CrossFit box here where my sister and brother-in-law are very active members. If somebody doesn't show up, people call. Hey, I, you, you missed, is everything okay? Are you dead? Because we didn't see you today. Or what day are you doing it? Or do you want to cut? My sister actually has, um, she and her husband have driveway. So on days when the gym is closed for whatever reason, you know, something's going on, they'll tell the whole rest of, you know, they're, they're whatever, Tuesday at 7 a.m. people or whatever, um, come by our house. Uh, we have the wad, the workout of the day in our driveway. And so being part of something like, like people don't join because, you know, my sister and brother-in-law have these, you know, Saturday sessions. They join because they want to get fit. 
And then they get to know these people who are so kind and welcoming and supportive and they see their body change and they're like, okay, I don't even care how much this costs. Like, you know, we don't really need electricity, but I do need CrossFit. And that's a great example of a forever transaction. And would you say, you know, pricing, not that it doesn't matter, but in that instance, right? The pricing, I, I think a lot of folks, sometimes you talk like, oh, we got to have the lowest price. We got it. But at the end of the day, people will pay money for things that give them value, right? That make them feel good, that help them out. And I don't Absolutely, think you always yeah. have to be the cheapest. In fact, a lot of times you don't. And something that I see in a lot of businesses that I think is a really big mistake is you come up with this new business model. It doesn't have to be just subscription, but for anything. And you're not getting the acquisition that you hoped for. And you jump and they jump to the conclusion that it's because it's too expensive. And, you know, this is, has to do with pricing elasticity of demand. You know, that that's the concept that, you know, every product has a certain amount of sensitivity to price. Um, if I have a drug that keeps me alive and it goes from being $10 a month to $11 a month, and if I don't take it, I die, like I'm going to keep buying it. And guess what? If it goes to $9, I'm not going to buy more of it because I only need one tablet a day, right? If I buy more of it, it just means I'm going to buy less later. So it's not going to change how much I buy. Um, that's a highly inelastic product. On the other hand, um, one of my first Booz Allen consulting projects was for salty snacks or, you know, potato chips. Potato chips are hugely elastic, right? If, if potato chips are half off, people buy more of them and they eat more chips that week. You don't save them in your pantry, right? It's impossible, right? If the chips are there, they call to you, you eat them all up, yum, yum, yum. And um, that's a highly elastic product. So a lot of times companies jump to the idea that their product demand is elastic. And if they drop the price by a dollar, it'll go up by 10%. Um, and it's usually not the case. Um, as you point out, there are some, you know, there are some things where the value, if the value is not there, I won't pay a dollar for it. And if the value is there, I'm almost price insensitive if there's enough value. So I think for something like CrossFit, it's pretty inelastic um, within a range. If they told you tomorrow that it was $10,000 a month to be a member, you'd probably drop out. But if they raise the price by, I don't know what, 10% you might keep going, 20% you might keep going, you know, they have a lot more flexibility. So I always encourage companies, um, if people aren't buying it, is it because um, is it because the price is too low? In other words, and you can ask them, say, hey, if I dropped it by 10%, will you sign up right now? And people are like, oh, no, I won't. Um, even though they tell you it's too expensive. And you look to other things like, is it, you know, I always say, um, are, you, are you talking to the wrong people? So if you offer people that are, you know, I don't know, people that are already married, Wedding dresses, they're going to say, I don't need that. And even if you drop it by 20%, I'm still not buying a wedding dress for myself. Um, so is it the right audience? And then the second thing is, is it the right message? Do they understand what you offer? So if I said to you, um, CrossFit is super hard and super scary, and you're probably going to get hurt, but you might get fit, right? You might, that's, you would say, if I understood that that's what CrossFit was, you'd say, Robbie, that's not what it is at all. It's actually really safe and they're very careful and you'll be fine if you just follow the instructions. So that's a messaging issue. And then a product issue is, you know, it's not worth the amount that I'm paying for. I understand what it is and I don't want it. Um, and so you really need to understand, is it a product problem? Is it a message problem? Or is it a channel problem? And then adjust accordingly. How do you, so and we were talking the last time about, you know, the, the business that I'm looking to start here and um, right around the Raleigh-Durham area with uh, <clears throat> kind of healthy kids lunches. And my, one of the things I'm in that survey phase right now to figure out, you know, pricing and those type of things. But how do you know when you, this, I'm actually really, this is going back to books. I'm reading this book right now called, um, Thinking Fast and Slow. Have you ever heard of this book? Oh, by Daniel Kahneman? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Way so above my vocabulary, but I'm reading it. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because it, it actually is, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm going through this. It's kind of reminding me of like the sample size. Like, okay, well, if I talk to 20 people, is that enough? Is, do I need to talk to 200? Like, how do I, how do I know if it's enough people to when to feel like, okay, not only is the price kind of right, but that these people actually want to sign up or they would, they're not just kind of blowing smoke. 
So yeah. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that, especially early on in a business. Yeah. So you don't, this is, you know, this is not scientific. This is very practical in the trenches, but when you're doing market validation, which is what you're doing, what you really want to do is number one, get as crisp and clear on who is going to love this product as possible, who, what your hypothesis is. Um, so are these people on a budget, people that are time crunch, kids with allergies, um, you know, what, what, who is the audience that you think is going to love what you have? And then you want to, first, you want to make sure not just that they say they'll buy it, but that they really understand the offer and that you get as close as you can to having them experience the offer the way that they, they will experience it. So like, if I gave you this flyer, would you sign up for this thing right now? You know, and you hand them a flyer or show them a web picture or whatever. And, you know, at that point, they'll be like, yeah. And then you say, okay, guess what? I have it coming out. And it is not true, of course, but I have it coming out next month. I'm going to give you a 10% discount since you said you want it. Give me a check. And that's where you find out if they're really serious. And they're like, oh, oh, well, I have to go home and talk to my wife or wow. Well, you know, actually, you know, we are doing bad lunches because we're kind of tight on cash. And you're like, oh, so, so that's the first thing you want to do is make sure the people that say they're interested really are interested. Second thing is, um, the more focused you are on your audience, um, the more clear you'll be if it works for them. And so then you, it's, it's a lower risk thing to go out and market to people just like that. For example, let's say that you find out that it is um, people in, the, in schools that don't have meal programs and that have high income neighborhoods, no meal program. You know, so you're very focused. Um, I think that's the other thing to do, but you don't need a huge sample size. Um, in fact, when you do market validation, you know, most organizations do um, two to three flights of three to five people. Um, and then you can always validate it with a survey, but for the validation interviews, you don't need that many, you know, five to 10 is probably enough if the audience is focused enough. And, and the way you know that the audience is focused enough is that you hear the same things back. By the third interview, you're like, wow, everybody's saying the exact same thing. If people are saying really different things, like one person says, well, we have this issue with allergies and somebody else says, we have a time crunch. And one, another person says, you know, we don't even have a lunchroom at our school. Then you're like, whoa, I have to pick one of these groups to focus on because it's too complex for a solopreneur. Yeah, that's, and that's what I was, I'm trying to think from a survey standpoint. Yeah, what questions to to, I guess, to prompt that and not, and not to sway their answer, right. To make it very like, so, so you start with the validation, which is qualitative. Those are live interviews um, where you're really trying to test your hypotheses. Like you're looking at this person across from you and you're like, in my mind, this is the person who's going to love this and buy it. And then you go through and ask them the questions. And if you get to that point where they're like, no, I don't want that. And they have a good reason. And you go to a second person who looks like them and they say the same thing. And then you go to a third person and they say the same thing. There's something wrong with your hypothesis. Gotcha. If they all say, I love it. I love it. I love it. Three people that seem similar and they all love it. And you're all excited. That's when you go and do a survey, which is a written thing that you send to many people. It's less flexible, um, but it allows you to see with a bigger group. So that's where you might say something like, here's the offer. Do you want it? How much would you pay for it? And then you say, would you, it's like, here's the offer. Would you want it? How much would you pay for it? We're offering it for $9.99. Would you pay that? And that's it. Just a short survey. Cause you're just validating the qualitative interviews that you've already done. And that's kind of market research 101 in the most simple kind of basic way of, of thinking about it for the solo floor. Okay. Um, so that one, extremely helpful. Thank you. Um, and hopefully helpful for others listening in. So with the, with the new book then, what's, is, is it similar to a membership economy where, you know, I think you'd mentioned in there where, Hey, you know, we'd love to read it front back, you know, front cover to back cover, but it's also kind of, Hey, there's certain times of your company, you might have to look at this, that, or the other. Is that kind of how it's set up? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I, I you know, I, I mentioned it's, it's, broken out into three parts, uh, mm -hmm. launch, scale, and lead. And then within those, the chapters, all the titles were designed to help you find the challenge that you're facing and focus in. So for example, um, choose the technology to scale, 
create and fine tune your pricing strategy, essential metrics for long-term relationships, how to develop your first experiments, um, choose the right who for the how, which is all about having the right team. So I really, I mean, I'd love for people to read it from, from cover to cover, um, especially if they're just kind of gearing up to do something, but I'm hoping that people then return to the book and say, I just need to look carefully at the part about pricing. And at the end of each chapter, I have specific questions and activities to do right away if that's where you are in the process. And where can everyone get it? Amazon, I'm assuming. What about any bookstores, anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the, the Kindle version is, is available now. Um, on Amazon. Uh, the print copies will be available everywhere books are sold on March 31st. Um, you know, you know, support your local import, uh, independent bookseller. Uh, and if you don't have one, then, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble will, will of course have the copies. Okay. So I was like to end on this is because I listen to a ton of podcasts, always taking some notes. Um, I've scribbled down a ton of notes just from our talk is what would you share kind of as a lasting impression, not only just on, on our conversation, but for folks that are listening in, maybe it's an action item for them to take. Sometimes it's a quote you might live by. Maybe it's a great piece of advice you got, or maybe you've learned from your experience. Anything you'd share to kind of wrap up today that'd be helpful for others to hear? Yeah, wherever you are in your journey toward building a forever transaction, take a step back and think about what is the long-term problem you're solving or goal you're helping your customers to achieve. And then take a hard look at the business you have and see if the two things fit. Simple. It's <laughs> simple. It really is. That's pretty good. Um, and, and I think I liked your points because you made several today's like, we don't have to overcomplicate things, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's really simple, really kind of keep focused. And, and ultimately, maybe that makes a lot of decisions for, for companies. Yeah. I think that companies that are focused on, you know, building a long-term relationship with the people they serve, it kind of serves as a filter for making decisions really fast because you're like, well, is this in the best interest of the customer? No. Okay. Then don't do it. Um, you know, we're, we're in a short-term crisis. It would be really, really great right now to ramp up our fees so we can hit our quarterly numbers. Is that in the best interest of our customers? No, let's not do it. Right? So it just, just have a lot of the noise. Yeah. Bobby, this is great. I'm glad uh, Brian Wish got us connected. Me I'm too. glad we're able to, uh, to have you on the podcast and uh, certainly good luck with the book. And uh, I know it's going to be, especially with the other one I read, how great it was. I'm assuming this is going to be pretty solid for people as well. So certainly appreciate you coming on and sharing your journey. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Brian. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that interview with Robbie. Really appreciate her being on and, and sharing a lot of great insight. Um, excited to read her new book and I hope you guys go pick up a copy as well. I did want to make one kind of point as a recap of the episode and, you know, it kind of goes back to almost the layoffs that, you know, her and I both had, a, you know, got laid off in our careers. Um, and I'm sure there's people listening on here that may have gotten laid off with this whole, you know, coronavirus um, kind of situation that we're in, or maybe, you know, friends and family that have, and, and that sucks. And I hate that corporations lay off people. Um, I guess I understand why they do it, but I, I don't agree with it. Um, but if you're in that situation, or even if you're not, this is such a great opportunity that we're in right now. If you take the glass half full uh, approach, where you're going to have a little more downtime. And now I know people are just like myself, where you're working a full-time job, you have other projects, and you're also homeschooling a little as well. But we, we have some pockets of time now that are available where we're not driving to work like we were before or lunch times aren't as long as they were before. Like there's some different things that you could carve out some extra time if you want. And I would encourage everyone to look at this as a chance to expand their knowledge in maybe one or two subjects that they're passionate about. You know, I did a one mic session a bunch of episodes back in the fall, but you can go check that out called the Toolbox of Knowledge. But the gist of it is basically how you can learn and expand who you are and kind of what you're going to become by utilizing information from your peers or your leadership or maybe other people in your company or departments 
Um, but away from that, even this time now that a lot of us are huddled in our homes, there's so many free online courses right now that you know universities or companies are just throwing out there. Go gobble it up. Go Google stuff. Figure it out. But I would, I would be so, um, I, I guess, thrilled to hear stories back that people went and they researched some topic that they really enjoyed and were passionate about, but maybe haven't had the time in the past, and that propelled them to maybe a new idea that maybe it started a side hustle for them, or maybe it helped them get a promotion at their business because they had some inquired um, or, or some acquired knowledge that had really helped them. So use this time as a positive that. You have more time now to learn and expand your knowledge and your insight about the world or various topics than you maybe normally do. And we don't have that excuse anymore of like, hey, I don't have the time. Well, you have the time. Um, So that would be my encouragement for everyone out there is take this opportunity, learn as much as you can, but maybe go one or two topics. You don't have to go, you know, try to uh, figure out everything, but one or two topics that's really important for you and go figure it out. And um, hopefully that at least gives you a leg up um, as we come out of this and really start, um, you know, really rearing up in terms of our careers or some other stuff as the economy gets back to uh, full throttle. So again, I appreciate everyone listening in. Remember, you can always check me out online at Brian Andreco on Instagram and Twitter or my website, brianandreco.com. I hope everyone has a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.